Hi, welcome to Literally, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Moss. And I'm Paige Wallace. And happy Valentine's Day, Paige. Happy Valentine's Day, Margaret. Works out like we're talking about love today. And hopefully, you know, it's a pandemic going on. I think we can all use a little extra love this year. I'm going to give a Wordsworth quote. What we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. I really like that. Yeah, so it's from the prelude. He's writing to, like, Coldridge, you know, typical. Yeah, I'm excited to chat about love, but, like, not in, like, a dear, prudy sort of way, uh, which I would not be excited to talk about. Wait, what's a dear, prudy? Or is it, is it prudy, dear prudy, or dear prudence, or it's dear someone, and you send in, like, your love life questions? Is not dear Abby? Is it Dear Abby? Did I just make up Prudy? Okay, maybe. No, I feel like, um, like once I went to college, I started hearing about other people's like advice columns that they grew up with. And I know Dear Abby is like national, but I think you're right that like, there's like the radio shows, which now I can't remember what they're called. So I know this is not what our episode's about, but you could totally use that as an example of like everyday writing. Oh, yeah. For like a comp class. Wonder how many of them still read advice columns. But yeah, advice columns are a very specific type of romance feature. <laughs> I mean, now they're Reddit, right? Like, that's where you get your advice from. Yeah, which kind of, I think, also answers the question. One of the questions we have with, like, why talk about romance in a classroom is that where do we see depictions of love? Where do we learn types of love and healthy relationships unhealthy relationships and not that literature classes are a guide to living well but they are one of the places that we kind of first encounter and start thinking about relationships well I think like with anything that like a subject that's really sort of got a set like genre or like set sort of genre conventions romance novels are a a place that in an intro English class, you can talk about uh, those conventions really specifically, right? Like who, who are our heroes, our heroines, uh, what kind of problems do we see? Even like some compare and contrast, right? So like what's a 1960s romance novel got that contemporary romance novels have shifted away from? I feel like it could be a really good class for like teaching students how to read text on like a very sort of like building block kind of way. Like here's the start of this. Now let's move it forward kind of thing. Yeah. And like, I, I like that you're bringing up too, like how they change and evolve where you get on one hand, the evolution of the genre, the evolution of language overall and the techniques that are popular at different times. But you also get the evolution of cultural values and expectations, like what's considered obscene, what's considered appropriate, what's considered normative. Even like with the taboos, like they play such a big role in romance novels, I think, because there's something erotic about the taboo. So like pinpointing like, this is where we start getting really uncomfortable (laughs) with this sort of idea. So romance novel about it. Yeah, so like as we're talking about it, I'm like, would I ever actually teach this? Because man, would it, it, there would be so many moments of like, I am so uncomfortable. 
but even that's a conversation I think of like like you're saying like why are we uncomfortable with this taboo right we don't think about marriage as like or we shouldn't think of it as transactional in the way that some early romance novels especially like I'm thinking mass market and there's some holdovers in that um in contemporary text that make us make me very uncomfortable at times I was pulling something up because you were reminding me that in my short story class, I had a lesson a day on, on sex and literature, which I forgot about till just this moment. But when you were discussing the discomfort, it came very quickly back. So we looked at, I don't remember specifics because this was at this point, like three or four years ago that I did this lesson. But I know at one point we read an excerpt from Ulysses, um, the masturbation on the beach scene why is this not pornography and that was one of the things we were talking about like what what's the line between written pornography literary eroticism and literary romance oh that's very interesting and very uncomfortable because I knew that like I was gonna have to be the one to read all these scenes because my students took a look at the pages and they're like I'm not saying those words in front of my peers which is something to keep in mind I think there's still this myth of college kids having this like sort of bacchanalian time like they're just having like threesomes and like sex every weekend and there's a lot more students who do not have sexual experience in the classroom, and even the ones that do have sexual experience are vastly uncomfortable still with sex. Like, they are not experimenting with sex because they are all liberated. They're experimenting with sex because they're trying to figure out their boundaries, their comfort levels, if they're doing any sort of experimentation to begin with. Like, they're, they're just starting. Uh, for a lot of them, their their own relationship with sex. And so they can be so embarrassed and mortified to be talking about it in a classroom. Fair, fair. I, I guess I was also thinking about when you, you said you did that lesson, like a, a daily lesson or just one day? It was just the one day. So each... Each of my uh, short stories days, we had a different theme where we were looking at two short stories that examine the same theme so we could talk about the different approaches to it in literature. It was, as you know, it was more of a survey or intro mm -hmm. level for a lot of non, non majors. We were really um, with that, like talking a little bit about what makes something literary, um, what makes something artistic in this sense. Would you, I wonder like, would it be interesting in a class like this, especially one that explored that question that you had about like pornography, romance, and literary eroticism. Could you, would you bring in something like Comstock Laws? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, now I would. Um, I wish I had available exactly what I did because I know we did, I think for that class, that was when we talked about um, Kurt Vonnegut's Welcome to the Monkey House. And so there was that discussion about censorship, government control with like w what you can talk about with all of this. And so the Comstock flaws actually would have fit really nicely. But yeah, in the future, I think I would definitely bring it up to discuss. It's not just the culture that decides what's appropriate, right? It's the, 
the legal system. <laughs> I think we did we did go over the Supreme Court case of I don't know the definition of pornography, but I know it when I see it. So like what 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 are we seeing? Well, so Paige, you and I, when we were talking about this episode, getting ready for it, we were kind of loose with our ideas, but we had mentioned like theory and application. So I'm just kind of letting our audience know, like in on this for thinking about broadly, like why, what can you do with romance in the classroom other than make your students uncomfortable as we've discussed and like there's this literary purpose, but in terms of theory and pedagogy and sort of the more abstract ideas with this, what do you see as the purpose or function of exploring romance? Well, so I don't know if this isn't a one-to-one, so it doesn't exactly apply to this sort of purpose or function of romance, but I am thinking about, or I was thinking about when researching for our chat, um, Bell Hook's Pedagogy of Love which she talks about in teaching community and this idea that love is like a taboo topic in academia. And we, we've touched on that before. Um, it, and it's especially like, it's fine for us to say, okay, I, I love what I'm doing, right? I love what I'm teaching, what I'm researching. But when we say things like, I love my students, well, are you being as professional as you should be. And, and I really like um, that Bell Hooks is thinking about love as this question of like, how can I serve my students? And so with that, I was thinking about what does teaching a romance literature class do in terms of serving our students and like what they need in order to learn. And, and so I think that's why, like I mentioned earlier, I was seeing it as a gateway into learning how to take text apart and also as a gateway into like finding genres that you love and I don't even know if I like love romance as a genre but I, I think the point is that that you can have a literature class that is sort of forefronting that idea like love um both in the sense of creating community with my students and serving them and also love in the sense of like, what is this cultural representation of love, romance, sex? What are the sort of playing that question back to them? Why do you think we're talking about this? What do you think the value here is? Just by answering that question, kind of like feeling out like, okay, so this, these are the, the trends towards um, these things, right? Whether they're like being uncomfortable about talking about sex or being uncomfortable about talking about love um, as something that's like not academic. And, and Bell Hooks has another book on that, not, not um, teaching community, but is about, I think it's called All About Love, actually. Let me um, make sure that's the right title. While you pull that up, the two things that were really standing out to me in what you're saying is like, firstly, like that, teaching and learning it's not always about what we're passionate about but that there can be this joy and like a lot of times it feels like we're missing that joy in in a classroom just learning about things that make us happy even if the topic is not a happy topic excited is the word I think you know like 
excited about it, whether or not, like, I would be excited to teach a class on romance literature, even though, like, I have a lot of complaints about uh, romance literature, you know, but I would be so excited about that. Yeah, there's, like, a, a passion, and it's not always a sexual passion, but just, like, something that's exciting and brings you joy, but two, you were making me think about, again, that literature, I think we often talk about it in a way that it's a cultural artifact. And we, this isn't the only purpose of a literature class, but we're teaching our students critical thinking skills so that way they can interpret and navigate the larger world. Like their world is filled with texts and they're not always Ulysses. Sometimes it's real housewives, but we want them to be able to navigate that successfully. Oh, would you teach real housewives in a class about romance? Or what about some of the like um, reality TV shows about love? Well, that's the thing. Sometimes my students bring that into our classroom and, and that's when I actually find my lessons. I know that they're successful in a way because my students are able to take in what we're talking about, digest it, mull it over, and then they become so adept at thinking about it that they're able to apply it to what they're seeing in the real world and bring it back to us. So um, I'm trying to remember exactly what we were talking about, Um, but they were comparing it to the Kardashians. I think we were talking about gender performance. (laughs) They were talking about the Kardashians and like how a lot of what they're doing is this construction of gender that they are then performing on social media. And we might not consider keeping up with the Kardashians highbrow, but my students were able to connect that and see it. And and I was like, okay, so you guys are getting it. I'm trying to think of how I would incorporate it into a lesson. And honestly, I'm not opposed to it, but my students bring it in themselves so frequently. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure right now I feel compelled to because that's just whenever we were talking we would talk about a theory and then I would ask them connections they tend to connect it to pop culture before they connect it to like works of literature I was thinking about how you could take ask them to like in an assignment ask them to identify a, a trope or convention of the romance genre after like maybe halfway through the semester and then apply it or in interrogate how it uh manifests in like a reality tv show or some other pop culture text but maybe not like something obvious right like in terms of like a romantic comedy or drama or whatever like a film but an like an episode of love island or or some such thing i think it would be really cool to do with a theory class where you could have them apply it to pop culture moments have them see that real world application so it's not this abstract theory that exists in the ivory tower but has these real world implications and i think that's what's really compelling to me about including romance in the class is because they do have an interest in it and a stake in it whether or not they're in romantic relationships but being able to analyze it from a distance allows them to work through those ideas And so that way, when they're in the thick of it, they have that foundation, that background, and they're able to hopefully just better assess their place 
within everything and, and their connection with the world around them and how they want to access that on their own terms as confident individuals. Yes. Yes. How, how far back in time would you go if you were teaching this class? Like, cause I was thinking about like courtly love, the lays of Marie de France. Um, love yeah. would be really interesting. I think if we're connecting it to pop culture to connect it to that virginity movement, like not the purity balls movement, but in the late nineties, early two thousands, where all of the pop singers had to make a point of talking about their virginity. Um, like it wasn't just behave as a virgin. It was talk about it in interviews. Let's talk about how you're a virgin and why you're a virgin and who you're being a virgin with. Yeah. And then you had, you have Christina Aguilera, who's like, I'm not a virgin. Leave me alone. <laughs> so that would be interesting and, and sort, but, um, if I'm talking, it depends on the, the theme I would go with romance because I think there's a lot of different ways you could take it. Um, like I was thinking one theme that would be fun would be unromance. Okay. Or thwarted expectations. And so things like um, Pride and Prejudice. I, I really enjoy how the traditionally romantic moments all take place off scene. Like there's um, Bennett, or not Bennett, um, Mr. Darcy proposes to Elizabeth Bennett twice. And the first one is the one she rejects. And that's terrible. It's like, I mean, your family's terrible. You're not that great. But for some reason, I'm in love with you. So can like, I guess we get married? Does that work for you? And that's the only engagement we see. We don't see the second engagement where they're both in love with each other, like longing. It's like, oh, and then he proposed again, and she accepted and they lived happily ever after. And so I think there's something really interesting there, like looking at like romantic novels that we as a culture have built up and pointing out how unromantic they are <laughs> and in a way of not, not trying to ruin it or saying they're bad, but thinking through what makes something romantic. It's not what we expect. Like we don't want the payoff. We don't want the happily ever after always. <laughs> we want the, the struggle. So I know you have to be dying to talk about Wuthering Heights right now. Yes. Wuthering Heights would be in that class too. And I'd have to give my students a heads up because the amount of students I have who, when we talk about what they like to read, I would say a good fifth of my students have said they love Wuthering Heights and they find it so romantic. Wait, do you know why I think that is? Why? Because that's the book in Twilight that Bella is infatuated with oh my goodness I really do I think that I have no definitive evidence for it but that's what I think it is well Paige knows this but I'll share it with everyone Wuthering Heights to me is one of the greatest comedies ever written and I think it's intended to be funny like they're terrible people <laughs> they're just running around being terrible <laughs> and I think it's well written I think the characters are fully fleshed, but I also think they're absurd and doing absurd things. And I think they're, I think it's on purpose. I think Emily Bronte is doing it on purpose. I don't know what she thinks about romance in real life, but I do think she is playing with some conventions of the Gothic novel, the romantic Gothic. I think having a good time with it and I think there's a joy in that like if we're talking about romance and joy like I think there's a joy 
in looking at ridiculous relationships and being like, why? Stop it. Don't, don't do that. No. But I also get why, because I did not read this in high school. So I can also see as a high schooler reading this novel and again, seeing the struggle as romantic. It's not the happy ending that's the payoff because there's no happy ending. It's the, oh, when you love someone, it's a lot of work and it's terrible and you feel awful. And that's how you know it's true. And then as an adult, you read it and you're like, no, that's why I wasted all that time on that person in high school. I think it would be really fun to look at Wuthering Heights as an early version of a romance comedy. Because what is a romantic comedy other than constantly thwarted love? Yeah. Of just these obstacles after obstacles. And, and that's what we find romantic is the challenge, which I think now we're seeing as a culture, like rethinking what, what's an appropriate challenge. It's not the, I'm going to prove to you that, that <laughs> I deserve your love. I'm going to convince you to date me. We have to find new challenges now. But that might, be, that might be a whole class of like romantic obstacles and working through that of what, what are the different obstacles we, um, against love that as a culture we want to overcome. So you could even start with Romeo and Juliet. Oh, absolutely. You'd have to start with Romeo and Juliet. Can you teach a class on romance and not? I see it happening like later on again when as a older teen you go back and reevaluate Romeo and Juliet and you're like why are you so dumb oh yeah I, I think like, I always felt that way like I remember watching the movie version like one of the movie versions in like eighth grade and we just watched the suicide and I was just like what just what did I just watch what why was this the solution because they're 14 and an idiot just like we were once 14 and idiots but I'm also thinking, so obviously that would be sort of an examination of literature as a cultural artifact, but I'm interested in the way you could use like romance novels or romance in novels for other pedagogical objectives. So I had mentioned, I think you could look at, I think you could use literature to more deeply examine something we're hinting around of how do you build tension? And so you could have it in a, in a class that's not necessarily focused on romance, but focused on tension. So you could pair it with like thrillers and all sorts of things. But how do you build that tension um, for your audience? And I think that's something I actually showed now. It's again, coming back to me in, in the short story class I taught, I showed them a scene from Before Sunrise. Okay. It's with, oh, have you ever seen that movie? It's with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. I don't think so. Very 90s. Flannel, greasy hair. It's, it's wonderful, though. It's just the two of them talking for the whole movie. And they're strangers when they meet, but they're getting closer throughout the movie. And you know that it's, the shift has come when they're standing in this listening room in a record store together, and the record's playing, and they both keep looking at each other, but they look like one will look at the other and they look away and then the other one looks and the other one looks away and so on. And, and that tension of building of just like looking at each other in silence. And as an audience member, you're like, Oh, like it's uncomfortable, but also delicious. Um, <laughs> but thinking, how do you translate that to the page that looking, looking away? Oh my gosh, they're looking at me. I'm looking at them. Is it going to happen? And I think there's, a variety of ways you can build that tension. 
I mean, isn't that all of Jane Eyre, I feel like? Yeah, that longing. Yeah. Yeah, you have to have, like, the meaningful looks where the audience knows, but the main character isn't sure. And how do you do that without it being stupid? Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Also, so Patricia Highsmith, who's, you know, known for a talented Mr. Ripley um, and, and mostly thriller and suspense novels, she has a craft book that's about building suspense. And I think that's really interesting since she has her one romance novel, which I've mentioned before, Carol or The Price of Salt. And she does a really, really nice job of building tension. But I mentioned this to you earlier. I think she would off this book would also be great to incorporate in a class to think about the gaze and not just the gaze of the characters, but the gaze of the audience. Like, how do you get the audience to look with the character and not at a character? And I think this is especially hard when you're talking about sex scenes. So I guess bringing it full circle, when we talked about literary eroticism and versus literary pornography and all that, she really walks that line. And so if I can, I'm going to share a passage just so everyone can hear this. Yeah. So for those of, uh, for everyone who's not aware, Price of Salt was turned into the movie Carol. It's about a young woman who has her sexual awakening, realizing she's queer with an older woman named Carol. And it takes place in the 1950s, which is when it was written. And it's sort of one of the first queer novels that has a somewhat happy ending. No one dies. <laughs> Maybe that's a spoiler. But so this is, uh, takes place about three quarters of the way in the novel and they finally are consummating their relationship. They're, they're coming to each other. And so they're on a road trip, staying in a motel and go to sleep. Carol said, Therese hoped she would not, but when she felt Carol's hand move on her shoulder, she knew she had been asleep. It was dawn. Now Carol's fingers tightened in her hair. Carol kissed her on the lips and pleasure leaped in Therese again, as if it were only continuation of the moment when Carol had slipped her arm under her neck last night. I love you, Therese wanted to say again. And then the words were erased by the tingling and terrifying pleasure that spread in waves from Carol's lips over her neck, her shoulders, that rushed suddenly the length of her body. Her arms were tight around Carol, and she was conscious of Carol and nothing else, of Carol's hand that slid along her ribs, Carol's hair that brushed her bare breast, and then her body, too, seemed to vanish in widening circles that leaped further and further beyond where thought could follow. While a thousand memories and moments, words, the first darling, the second time Carol had met her at the store, a thousand memories of Carol's face, her voice, moments of anger and laughter flashed like the tail of a comet across her brain. And now it was pale blue distance in space, an expanding space in which she took flight suddenly like a long arrow. The arrow seemed to cross an impossibly wide abyss with ease seemed to arc on and on in space and not quite to stop. Then she realized that she still clung to Carol, that she trembled violently, and the arrow was herself. She saw Carol's pale hair across her eyes, and now Carol's head was close against hers. And she did not have to ask if this was right. No one had to tell her, because this could not have been more right or perfect. She held Carol tighter against her and felt Carol's mouth on her own smiling mouth. Therese lay still, looking at her, at Carol's face only inches away from her, the gray eyes calm as she had never seen them, as if they retained some of the space she had just emerged from. 
And it seemed strange that it was still Carol's face with the freckles, the bending blonde eyebrow that she knew, the mouth now as calm as her eyes, as Therese had seen it many times before. My angel, Carol said, flung out of space. And I just love that on one hand, there's this like naturalizing to their th this moment of sex, which is so often sex in general, but specifically queer sex is depicted as deviant or perverse. But comparing it, uh, earlier she compares it to like a flower and a green vine spreading, and then we get this comet, we get space. It's just this naturalization, but that's still exciting and new. And we're seeing the body, we're seeing it eroticized, but we're not seeing it fetishized. Mm -hmm. It's still a part of a, a person and it's important who the person is. It's not that it's the most perfect breast that has ever been sculpted on a woman. It's the memories behind it, how, how they emotionally feel about each other, but also how the physical sensation, like I love that it's like these waves spreading over. She feels like there's an arrow and then the arrows herself, like it brings it back to the body. And I think this would be a really, and I, I've used it in, in, in classes successfully. So I shouldn't say, I think I know it's a really nice passage to work with your students to talk about craft and, and the different literary elements at work that create this larger scene. Yeah. And it's a beautiful passage. And, and, you know, like we have, like I said earlier, the Wordsworth quote, where we teach people to love it. And I feel like you just taught me to love it. It is beautiful. And I do like that naturalization that you were talking about. Uh, absolutely. So, so you teach price assault. Yes. Um, yes. But not in the thwarted love class. <laughs> I teach it in the women and lit, which, and it, it's nice to be able to look at these moments female sensuality with, mm -hmm. um, and really look at the way we depict female pleasure, which personally, I don't remember ever talking about in a literature class when I was a student of what does, how do we depict female pleasure? Right. There was more like, how do we not objectify women, but not how do we empower their sexuality? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this would also be a place to bring in Laura Mulvey and the, the gays. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So we were talking about the different themes. So we said, first you had like, th like the, th the thwarted love sort of theme. And then just generally like a women in lit class where female like sensuality and pleasure is a part of the conversation. What are, well, I mentioned earlier that I read like when we were chatting, I mentioned that I'd read some, uh, a presentation by um, an IU librarian, Rebecca Bauman, who uses or sort of proposed to use mass market romance novels, like, and their publication history and trajectories to teach history of the book, which I want to know more about, but find that really interesting. And also thinking about as far back as like courtly love could, you know, uh, make for a, re a really interesting history of the book class. Um, but what are some other themes that we would think about or ways, again, that it could be maybe not like romance could be maybe not the 
overall or overarching theme of the class, but parts of what you teach in a more general literature class? Well, this would be a survey course, but when you were just talking about courtly love, it made me think of Life of Bath. Which mm. is... Yeah, I was totally t- thinking about Chaucer. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that with my rabbit hole that I was going down earlier with Ulysses, that one of the, like, I know there's a lot that you can unpack with Ulysses in terms of its sexist moments, it's these problematic moments with gender, but I also think Molly Bloom is just, it's so incredible to me to see this depiction of a flawed woman where the novel acknowledges her flaws, but also is consistently asserting that she is deserving of love. She is deserving of emotional support and physical affection. She is deserved to be appreciated on her terms. Um, And you can talk about like her consent at the end and how her, her consent is prioritized. But I really love the idea of a flawed heroine who is appreciated for her flaws not in spite of her flaws or like her flaws aren't romanticized where they're like where it's like oh that's actually like problematic and we don't want to but i'm thinking about that with terms of the wife of bath who's in this other kind of female character who's appreciated for her flaws they're both written by men (laughs) but what could we like maybe there's something there you could trace in a survey course about like flawed women but not in a way of, of where, where we typically look at how women are demonized but what are the examples throughout history of flawed women so I'm not sure if I can think of other examples of flawed women that would go into this course but maybe instead what it could be instead of a course on flawed women aka human women as they, but it could be a course on character building how okay characters? how do we develop fully fleshed characters well-rounded characters um margaret do you want to teach a creative writing class yeah i feel like you this episode you you are tapping into um like a lot of like those technical like form how do we build tension how do we build a character you have to like you're going to teach a creative writing class i think i like talking about it from a technical standpoint because I like to ground my students in the intention behind consciously created works. They're not accidents. Sure. Um, and I think part of it is also that I was, I like the science of it in a way. Like I tell my students that, yes, this is like self-expression, but there's formulas to this. The marriage plot is. Yeah. Oh, that would be a good class. The marriage plot. Yeah. And that would lend to something we've discussed uh, a little preparing for this episode of Nancy Armstrong's some call it fiction the politics of domesticity Mm -hmm. it's all about how political change happens within the home because it's where you digest these ideas you mull them over they become a part of you and then you go back into the world with these ideas the marriage plot is always political like absolutely what's the purpose of the marriage wait I feel like I'm always just like and what about this popular culture text but you have to talk about Bridgerton. Yeah. I mean, which would be so fun because again, like it's why this hit hit show um, that's taken over and it's totally about the marriage plot. Which 
sorry, this just jumped in my head. I've seen so much discussion about Bridgerton and kind of this post-racial period piece, which is debatable, like how post-racial it is, but very debatable. Yeah. But no one's talking about the fact that it's still so classist, like a duke. <laughs> That's the ultimate. <laughs> I mean, I guess she turns down a prince, but as I've mentioned off air. It's a German prince. He's minor. (laughs) (laughs) But it's still very much like based in like this hierarchy system. And marriage is one that elevates you within that hierarchy, which which is part of that ultimate question of the marriage plot is on one hand, yes, marry for love. There's this idealization of romance, but also marry someone who's stable and secure because your marriage is what provides what and this idea of like how women are able to elevate themselves and like the the many ways that has changed or stayed the same that that's interesting to me yeah and i think there's a way that too that you can look at the evolution of the marriage plot and how it responds to like the changing gender roles um changing industries even like what's considered viable what's considered respectable and so it wouldn't necessarily just be about romance it would be about race politics class everything we always say that literature is about yeah because it is yes okay so what do we think our ultimate goal would be for teaching a romance literature, right? And we're thinking romance, like not the literary category romance, but I mean, I get we could, but um, what would the ultimate goal then be? I will say first, my unofficial ultimate goal, which would really be the driving force would be preparing my students to be able to critically assess relationships in um, once they leave the classroom okay Uh, to have them be able to to decide for themselves what they consider healthy what they consider to be unhealthy how to navigate that um and to be able to see the media they're consuming and being able to say like yes this is a positive depiction or no this is a negative experience because we are constantly having media influence our understanding um and and seeing things like that are healthy or unhealthy and media helps to determine our boundaries and Mm -hmm. i want my students to be able to have a role in deciding what their boundaries are and not just accept the boundaries given to them yes but that is not what i would put on my syllabus no no so wait i'm gonna go with mine because i think it relates to that unofficial one and maybe as a way to to do that Uh, in an official capacity, but I think it's performance, like gender performance would be the ultimate goal there. And I think romance novels are a great way to interrogate masculinity, femininity, flawed women versus ideal women, so on and so forth. And that those, those performances. I think mine would probably be similar to that. I would articulate my unofficial goal into the official syllabus objective, which would be to um, analyze and evaluate texts within their cultural milieu, which is just to say, look at the cultural context. What is this responding to? But then how does this uh, further the conversation or change the conversation? And what about it is contributing to the cultural norms, challenging them, 
or furthering them. Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, let's talk about our dream courses now wrap up, but I feel like I just learned so much, Margaret. Yeah. I'm thinking I have a million dream courses now. Yeah. So you have to narrow. I, I have a narrowed one if, if you want me to go first. Yeah, you go first. Okay. So I want to teach a class on post-colonial environments. And I think that this is the first time that my dream course has just been like a regurgitation of my dissertation. Um, but I have been thinking a lot about like how I could make that like work. Um, and it wouldn't be exactly my dissertation, but it would have to do with like how environmental legacies, like the ideas of nature and wilderness have been impacted by colonialism and specifically like colonial occupations. And so I would use um, excerpts from Glissant's, like a lot of Glissant actually. So that would be my theoretical framework, surprise, surprise. Um, and I talk about like Tar Baby um, by more like Morrison's Tar Baby. And then also maybe A Mercy, um, which I really love. And um, Matt Johnson's Pym, I think would be a really good one. Um, Through the Arc of the Rainforest, maybe some Percival Everett in there. But yeah, like to the goal, the objective would be to think about how the idea of wilderness and nature has been crafted by colonialism or through colonialism. I'm really glad you went first because you just gave me my dream course. Okay. In conjunction with this class that you just proposed, but also synthesize it with what we just talked about and look at the post-colonial or colonial and post-colonial love triangle. Ooh. Um, so I, so for thinking about the colonial love triangle, you have the colonizing male, the colonized female and the colonized male and the colonized female leaves the colonized male for the colonizing male which is you know a metaphor for accepting colonization which a lot to unpack so think like Pocahontas John uh -huh. Smith Pocahontas Cocoam that Pocahontas is told she's supposed to be with Cocoam but she just loves John Smith and wants him to come back I show the end of that scene to my students sometimes the, um, the end of that movie where movie to my students sometimes who and it's not just her waving goodbye to John Smith the wind is like blowing leaves to call him back the land itself wants the return of the English and it's just this romanticization of colonization eventually imperialism but I think there's a lot of novels where you could explore that and how it shifts as the goals change uh, and then rebuttals to it. But I think it would be fun to do, even with something like Gone with the Wind. Um, that's not strictly colonization, but um, Rhett as the Old South. Um, what is the other one's name? The one she loves? Because I want to call him Guy, and that's not it at all. I can't be helpful in, the, in answering that question. Oh, I, I'm, I'm mixing up their names, but basically um, that... I think it's actually Rhett is Rhett is the new South of like the not the plantation owner aristocracy, um, whereas Ashley is the old South. Okay. 
up with and and that um if you really get into it tara in ireland is like the site of kingship and so scarlett o'hara becomes this representation of like who's going to rule the south after slavery um and so i think there'd be a lot of really interesting things to use these love triangles to unpack the politics um of who who's colonizing who who rules the land and i'd love to teach it in conjunction with your class because there's so much about the land like with what i talked about with pocahontas and plantations and all of that yeah i was thinking about um when you're saying that like that sort of tension between woman as like the matron to be taken care of right land as to be taken care of to cared for that agrarian sort of um ideal and then well also agrarian is to to think of it as like um to be tamed right to be used um and yeah and so there are all these sort of like matron virgin mother wife kind of um images with that yeah and you could do it either like just focused on american literature or you could focus it as like a world like class Mm -hmm. kind of appears again and again but it's always i shouldn't say always it's usually the same sort of motif again and again of woman is land man is ruler and native as threat yeah Absolutely. Okay. Wow. I have so many things to think about now, Margaret. I know. What a productive, happy Valentine's Day. Like, I'm really serious when I say this sort of stuff. I think it, it's hard. It's about joy for me. Yeah. For Valentine's Day, what a joyful time just to think about how much there's still to learn in the world. This was our, like, we should have had champagne because this was like our COVID version of Galentine's. I mean, <laughs> Jeez, we missed out on that opportunity, Margaret. Oh, well, maybe we can make it a tradition and everyone can drink champagne with us next year. Yes, yes. All right, awesome. Talk to you later, Margaret. Bye.